Welcome to Bug Banter with the Xerces Society, where we explore the world of invertebrates and discover how to help these extraordinary animals. If you want to support our work, go to xerces.org slash donate. Hi, I'm Rachel in Missoula, Montana. I'm Matthew in Portland, Oregon. We've previously talked about overwintering monarchs seeking refuge in warmer climates. But what do other butterflies do during the winter? Do they also migrate? Do all butterflies overwinter as adults? If so, where do they hide? In leaves or rock piles or up in the trees? If not, how do they survive? How do these warm, loving butterflies do it during the winter? To answer these questions and help us explore the world of wintering butterflies is Kevin Burles, Xerces Society Endangered Species Conservation Biologist. Kevin has spent several seasons searching for endemic and at-risk butterfly species in Nevada, and his work now focuses on protecting the hundreds of butterfly species that inhabit deserts, forests, and grasslands across the western United States. Welcome, Kevin. We're excited to have you here today. Thanks, Rachel. Thanks, Matthew. It's great to be here. I'm always excited to talk about natural history of butterflies. That's always a highlight of mine. And certainly at my home office in Washoe Valley, south of Reno, we just had about eight inches of snow in the valley and two feet in the mountains the other day. And I know there's other places having snow today, too. So the topic seems appropriate. Yeah, no, great. And if, if you love talking about insects, this is the right place to be. So that's great. <laughs> so, I mean, to start with, um, can you give us a sense of the diversity of butterflies? Um, you know, like how many species are there in, either in the world or the or the U.S.? Yeah, and I always like to start these sorts of conversations out with partly to satisfy my academic mentors who also studied moths, that of course butterflies are only one small portion of the order that we call Lepidoptera, and so that includes both butterflies and moths. There are about 10 times as many moths as butterflies, mm -hmm. and so they really are a small portion of the group. But of course, butterflies are the day-flying variety that has really specialized on using the floral resource of nectar as adults. And of course, they also then have the amazing colors that we get to see on their mm -hmm. wing scales. So across the world, there are uh, somewhere over 17 and a half thousand species of butterflies described. And most of those are in the tropics. They are most diverse in the tropics, just like lots of groups of animals. Uh, and those butterflies are organized into six different families. So that's, I'll sometimes be referring to families when I talk about different species. And so there's only six different families of butterflies. Uh, there's roughly 750 species or so of butterflies in the United States, including Hawaii, and there's slightly over 800 in all of North America. Uh, most of the states with high butterfly diversity have some sort of subtropical habitats. So you could think of places like Texas and Florida, or they often contain many different types of habitats and many different kinds of plant species to go along with those. So I think of places like Arizona and California for places like that. Uh, and just to mention it, of course, they range in size from being as small as the Western pygmy blue, whose wingspan is approximately half an inch across uh, mm -hmm. and sometimes feels much smaller. Yeah, about the size of a, of a pinky fingernail, maybe. Oh, and so then on the, yeah, it is super cute. And <laughs> we often find them just by the shadows that they make. It's easier to chase their shadows than it is to chase the animal. Uh, and then on the other end of that scale, you have the giant swallowtail, which is over six inches across at its wingspan. So. That's nice. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah and uh, yeah, well, often over the size of your hand. Yeah. Wow. 
I got the opportunity to see a blue morpho in Costa Rica. Those butterflies are so big and beautiful, but it was just for a split second because they flew so quickly and you just see that shimmer of a blue. I was like, well, at least I got to see one for two seconds. Yeah. Usually what? 10, 12 feet above the ground, kind of Mm -hmm. flying in a straight line from one place to another. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) They're quick. Yeah. It's amazing just to imagine just the size differences in them. Um, Do you have a favorite butterfly? I... I don't like picking favorites that much. I have to admit, it's not my it's not my thing. But I do have two that really that I, I after a little bit of thought really stuck out to me uh, from some of our recent work. So for uh, for sheer beauty at first glance, my wife and I both like families in uh, butterflies in the family Lycenidae, which are sometimes called the gossamer winged butterflies. They generally don't have a very strong directed flight. Uh, like the blue morpho does, they kind of flutter around in a typical, very lazy fashion. And for me, one of my favorites in that group is the ruddy copper, Tharsalea rubidus. Despite the name that it has, the upper side of that butterfly is a brilliant red-orange color. Uh, and it's it's extremely striking at first glance. So that is one of my favorites, just to go out into the field and look for, because when you find it, it's always a joy. Uh, and then for its biology, I think I, I do favor uh, one that we found in recent surveys called the the small blue, Phyllotiella speciosa. It's not a very common butterfly, and most populations of this species live in desert regions, fairly isolated from one another, and individuals can spend years in shallow desert soil as a chrysalis, waiting for the rain conditions to match those that its plant needs to emerge out of the ground. It feeds on an annual plant that only lives for a single year. And so it has to wait for just the right times and they don't come every year. And so getting to see that was certainly a highlight of our time. Yeah, I I agree with you that I'm trying to name your favorite is a a hard one. Um, I've often circled back like you to the to the blues and the gossamer wings just because of their beauty and uh, but it's also they're so small um, and I'm often um, drawn towards the smaller things rather than the big showy ones but in my experience often my favorite one is whatever I'm seeing you know <laughs> it's like you ask me it's like well this is the one I saw yesterday it's what I saw last week and that's what I'll be you know but yeah but you also with your, with your mention of the um um the butterfly, the chrysalis that stays in the soil for all those years, does tie us back to like how do butterflies survive the winter? Um, we know the monarch does it as an adult. Are there other butterflies that overwinter as an adult? Yeah, some butterflies do overwinter as adults, although it is not the most common strategy. And most butterflies that overwinter as adults. Uh, are in the family that we call brush-footed butterflies, which is the Nymphalidae family. One of my favorite examples is the morning cloak butterfly, Nymphalis antiopa, which is found across the entire United States, including Alaska, as well as most of Canada. And this butterfly is often one of the first butterflies that folks can see in the springtime in most of the country. And in many places, it can come out on a particularly warm sunny day in late winter or early, early March. I will not be surprised to see them on a very sunny day of spring break in late March here in the Reno area, if you get the right weather. Uh, There are also a couple really just kind of cool looking, different looking butterflies. 
in this same family that overwinter as adults. And these are known as commas or angle wings. They have a very distinctive outer wing shape that looks like it was maybe carved with a jigsaw, I guess. <laughs> and they're in mainly in the genus Polygonia. And many of these are forest dwellers and they are extremely well camouflaged. The undersides of their wings look very much like tree bark. Uh, the gray patterning, gray, brown modeled patterning. Some have really cool green mossy colors intermixed with them. And they spend the winter, uh, just like you'd expect, nestled into wood crevices of uh, large conifer trees uh, in some woody area or deciduous trees. In the eastern species, the gray comma, the winter generation emerges and then actually rather quickly goes into that hibernation phase and then emerges again in late spring, early summer. And then they have two generations then. So one lays eggs as a full adult generation, they lay eggs and that adult generation again goes right back into hibernation. So that's kind of a fun bit of life history. Yeah. Can I can I just jump in with a little thought? Yeah. You mentioned um, you know, the the angle wings, the commas, the morning cloak. What is there a particular place or a type of location where the adults will hide? I mean, you say they overwinter, but where would they actually go if there's a foot of snow on the ground, for example? Yeah, uh, especially because there are some species that overwinter as adults that do combine some sort of movement, which we might mm -hmm. talk about. But for those that overwinter in place, they're usually going to find refuge from the cold and snow in places like under rocks, in thick rock crevices, in really thick woody debris um, nestled into the crevices of living bark, even of things like, you know, out here we have Jeffrey pine, which has really big bark on mature trees. Um, and sometimes in seasonal buildings like sheds or cabins, it's not uncommon for folks to open up a seasonal shed and, and scare out a, a morning cloak or two. Yeah, no, because I, I was remembering one time when I was um, visiting family in Britain, we went into what was an old um, storage, but like a kind of, couple of centuries old um and it had had been an ice house i believe and the ceiling was covered with tortoiseshell butterflies overwintering and so there was probably a hundred or more just tucked away in this uh, we just we were walking down by the beach and stumbled across this old structure and we're like oh what's inside just because you do um and that they, they, they were all uh, just tucked up hanging from the ceilings and it was pretty cool how fun to see them in that number. Yeah, that's yeah. great. Yeah, no, it was it's the only time I've ever seen anything anything like that at all. Yeah. yeah. So you mentioned that these are the butterflies that stay in place. Are there butterflies that also migrate or move around and interactive in the winter time? Yes. Uh, so several species that overwinter as adults do seem to combine this strategy with some sort of seasonal migration. And the best example of this in the Western U.S. is probably the Painted Lady, Vanessa Cardiwai, which can build up huge populations near the U.S. Baja border. Oftentimes, though not always, uh, in El Nino years, big El Nino years, and then they explode northward, often with that generation flying hundreds of miles at a time without stopping in very directional flight. Uh, you can stumble on them in large numbers on the right day, especially in places like the California Central Valley. 
And they do that by relying on huge fat reserves that they have built up as caterpillars. And that is a somewhat distinct trait from some of the other generations of that butterfly. And it's a little noticeable in a somewhat morbid way when you run into them with your car. Uh, because they're <laughs> extraordinarily uh, fatty on the windshield. So there, there yeah. is that, but it's noticeable and it's a real thing. They have these huge fat reserves that they build up. Um, and in the fall, at least some of their offspring will migrate back south, oftentimes in the west along the co uh, edge of the Sierra Nevada mountains. Uh, but in this species, the butterflies that are moving south are kind of continuing to feed and possibly as they get much further south, then they'll begin to be laying eggs again and they'll continue breeding all year round in those most southerly locations. Mm -hmm. And that is part of what distinguishes them and most other migrating butterflies from the monarch butterfly, where the same individual that leaves Idaho and flies southwest to the coast of California is going to go into reproductive diapause stay in those groves all winter and then that individual will be the one that starts the migration back into the most of the interior west the following spring yeah because i i do always think it's interesting people have this they know the monarch migrates but they don't know that other insects do <laughs> you know and particularly i mean you mentioned the painted lady and there are the other vanessids that will also migrate similarly. And the, the painted lady is the one that makes it into the media every now and then, because either there, it seems that there's a cloud of migrating butterflies is spotted on, on weather radar, or as you say, they there's a lot of mortality on roads and that actually can make um, roads dangerous sometimes. Um, so that makes it, people notice when those kind of things happen. Yes, and the painted lady, by the way, is, is I believe the most widespread butterfly on the planet is mm -hmm. found all over the world and also migrates from Northern Africa and the Middle East to Europe during the summer yes. and also yeah. returns. And so you can often find them in large numbers in places like the Island of Cyprus while they're making their migration. Mm -hmm. So yeah. you have it all across the globe. You have those concentrations of them. Yeah. yeah I, I'm going to bore you with another British anecdote now. Um, when I was living in Britain, I was working on um, a site called Samphire Ho, which is uh, just at the base of the White Cliffs of Dover, um, and the narrowest part of the the sea division between Europe and um, Britain. And I happened to be working that day, and it was a year when there was a huge painted lady migration, and was down there, and the butterfly started flying. And so all of a sudden, you're like, well, there's butterflies everywhere. And it was one of those unusual years that doesn't normally happen in such numbers. But again, just by chance, I was there on that, that morning when the butterflies started arriving from across the channel. And it was just, again, one of those experiences that stuck with me um, and helped move me along in the, in the direction of my career. So pretty amazing. Yeah. Well, seeing that sort of thing in large numbers, I think, is one of the kind of great phenomena of the natural world, right? And it is mm -hmm. the insect equivalent of large migrations of caribou or, mm -hmm. you know, historic herds of bison on the plains. You know, it is an amazing thing to see something in that large a number. <laughs> Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it is not, uh, it's, it's very apropos to talk about 
uh, British anecdotes with migrating butterflies, I think, because, you know, in addition to the painted lady, the red admiral is another butterfly mm -hmm. that also exists in the old world and migrates uh, uh, across most of its range, including Europe and Eastern North America, although it doesn't appear to migrate as much in the Western parts of North America, at least to the to the same extent, it's not as apparent. So yeah, there's there's multiple butterflies in that kind of brush-footed little grouping of nymphalids that uh, that are shared across the pond, as it were. You had mentioned that most butterflies don't overwinter as adults. That's not the common thing that we find. So why is it that some species do overwinter as adults, and then obviously you know other butterflies will overwinter in their larval stage or another stage is probably the most common i think is the larval so why do they choose those different strategies to survive winter and do we know i guess this is a better question <laughs> it is a really good question and we don't we certainly don't always know and i wouldn't it's not in my nature to predict why a certain species does a certain thing off the top of my head. That comes from my training as an evolutionary biologist. And uh, adaptation is something that happens, but it's not, it is certainly not always the default reason we should ask why a trait is there. And, but it is the way why it is the way that people ask that question. So it's a very good question because that's how people ask that question. Um, and so I guess I will go back to, again, my work as an evolutionary biologist and just point out that there is what we call a phylogenetic signal in this trait, which is closely related species tend to share the overwintering strategies. And so it's a fairly closely related group of nymphalids that we've been talking about that overwinter as adults and tend to share this migration strategy, although, of course, it is shared in other places, right? I don't mean to say that's the only place we see it. Mm -hmm. uh, but as another example, many coppers and hair streaks overwinter as eggs, while another group of butterflies in the same Lycenidae family overwinter as chrysalids. So there is certainly a lot of shared heritage in that trait. And that is because it is a trait driven by many genetic and physiological limitations. So it's not something that we can always jump up and change. And the extreme example that I give to people is it might be adaptive for us to grow wings, but we do not have the genetic variation to do that with. And so within a species, they just don't always have that variation to just shift all of a sudden. Um, so uh, beyond you know, your heritage, as it were, I suppose, we might expect that migratory butterflies, like other migratory species, are moving based on resource shifts that are seasonal in nature. And so that could be breeding habitat, it could be evading cold temperatures, it could be finding resources that are available in other locations. And it's possible I suppose, that overwintering in place as an adult might just be left over from a species that migrated in the past, right? That's just an example of how those things can come to pass, right? Um, and overwintering as a larva, again, just to spin speculations, right, as to how things can work, overwintering as a larva can be successful in that you're ready to eat plants as soon as they are available, so you might beat out some of the other herbivore competition. 
overwintering as an egg can be useful because honestly, it is a fairly simple structure compared to a growing larval organism or a rearranging chrysalid or a fragile adult. And so you can see that there might be trade-offs to each one. And I think the overall goal or the, the point that back to the idea of things not necessarily having to be super adaptive or the best is that if you aren't going to leave, you have to find a way to do it. And so in the things that are around, everybody finds a way because that's that's how you keep yourself around is you find a way to spend the winter months. We all do. So, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah it was, that was a great, there's so much information in that. I'm just kind of, it's, it's passing, passing through my head as I'm, as I'm thinking about it. Um, I, I'm, I'm just interested because I mean, you mentioned eggs, caterpillar, chrysalis. I mean, other examples of butterflies that might overwinter as an egg, or I mean, you mentioned the the um, the one that the chrysalis is buried in soil for a few years. I mean, this, I just find these kind of um, behaviors and uh, strategies from insects just so amazing. And I always want to dig in and, and learn more. Yeah, that's where some of the amazing variation really is, right? That's where some of the yeah. diversity really lies. Um, yeah, so it is true that probably the majority, uh, to some extent or another, of butterfly species in the U.S. at least overwinter as caterpillars, the larval mm -hmm. stage. And just as an easy example, uh, skipper butterflies in the family Hesperiidae that feed on grasses will often overwinter as partially grown larvae and they'll take the grass leaves and curl them around with silk and make a little silk shelter and they'll last the winter in that little silk shelter. You can see that being really advantageous in grasses. They start growing really early. They start growing really fast. There's a fair amount of competition for them. Yeah. So it's nice to be around. One of my favorite examples of larvae overwintering though is, is more extreme. It is in the Nymphalidae family with the true fritillaries. Uh, there's a whole set of butterflies and these butterflies feed on violets and adults in the late summer lay eggs on or near violet plants that are already dead for the year. So this would be late August, early September. The caterpillars hatch and they immediately eat their eggshells, which other species do as well. And then they go into reproductive diapause without eating any plant, uh, excuse me, uh, uh, seasonal diapause without eating any food at all, any other plant material at all. And they spend that entire winter unfed as per what we call first instar. That's the very beginning larvae. And then in the springtime, when the violets begin to grow, they become active again and start to devour violet plants. And they typically have to move from one violet plant to another, to another, to another through their growth. And then they will emerge as adults in late spring, early summer. So they have a very uh, hard first test. That first, that first strategy for them yeah. is rough. And uh, another fun thing about that set of butterflies, for one reason or another, the females, after they emerge as adults, will often mate and then go into a summer estivation period, while the males will continue to fly around all summer. So most of the year, in the summertime, you can only find males, although you can find the females at the very beginning of their flight and then at the end for a few weeks. So, so the females just kind of sleep the summer through. 
That seems to be the case. Yeah. yeah. If they're saving resources or, or yeah, evading the heat, I don't really know. I don't know why the males don't choose to do the same thing either. It's not, I am not clear on that. Yeah. The guys are not always the most intelligent. I think that's it. Um, <laughs> Often true in the insect world, at least. Coming back to the small blue that I mentioned earlier, that species does overwinter as a chrysalis and it's not a very flashy one. And so, as I said, it, feeds on an annual plant in the buckwheat family. And most populations are in deserty areas that don't get very much rain. And that rain is very sporadic, even seasonally. And so it waits for springtime rains that come just at the right time for this annual plant to emerge. And it has its cues timed similarly so that it emerges right when the plant is available for it to lay eggs on. And it has to be early enough so that the eggs that it lays can hatch and fully develop on that plant while it's still alive and thriving. Usually fairly early in the desert summer, late April, early May. And then it will pupate in the soil, turn into its chrysalis stage in shallow desert soil or potentially under leaf litter of some of the annual plants that are around as well. And then it will wait again for the right rains. And in my experience in our area, that's every three to six years. So that's its typical overwintering cycle. And my the most extreme example of this that I know of is from a 2018 study done by Todd Stout, who is in Utah. And he was raising a set of species that are in the Anthocaris genus, which is the orange tips. Mm -hmm. He was looking as a, at a desert orange tip, which is the Cethera species. And he collected it from Clark County, Nevada in March 1997 as an egg and reared the egg. And that pupa hatched in March 2008, 11 years later. So that is the longest that I have found from oh, wow. North America. Uh, most individuals in that species, it seems to be two to three years, but 11 mm -hmm. years. And those uh, species, those individuals overwinter as pupae. Um, and that is something that you might also see in native bees as well. So if the chance comes up to talk about some native bee species overwintering strategies, you would see very similar strategies where they can wait out enormous amounts of uh, time. Wow. Um, talking about blue butterflies in the ground, it makes me think of those species that have the close relationship with the ants. Um, where you know ants collect the small caterpillars, the early in star caterpillars, and take them into the nest. Um, from what I remember, the, those cat, those butterflies complete the life cycle through the adult in the nest, and then come out from the underground as an adult. And I mean, I'm sorry if I'm putting you on the spot here because this, this may not be your 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 area of knowledge but um, am i right about that and if and presumably then they they must overwinter in the nest because i can't imagine they would come out as an adult or do they come out and lay eggs and then overwinter anyway <laughs> I, I i honestly i just find that life cycle so fascinating that that these butterflies are reliant upon an ant to collect them <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. then look after them un underground and it just seems that seems like so completely opposite to most people's ima imagined picture of what a life of butterfly is 
Yeah, that is a, a really great example of what we call a mutualism. Yeah. Uh, in some instances, it's a mutualism. And actually, in the example you are talking about, I'm not sure that it classifies as mutualism because I'm not sure what the ants get out of it. And so most, not all, certainly, but many butterfly species that have a relationship of some kind with ants are in that Lycenidae family, again, the gossamer wing families, uh, butterflies, and there are some species that do complete their life cycle and are tended by the ants in the ant colony. And they do seem to come out as adults. And we, those are for the species that we know that life cycle for. And there are probably others where we don't know the whole life cycle, where that may be the reason is because they're completing it in an ant colony. So it's unclear in some instances and known in others. And probably we'll find more examples of that because it's a pretty pretty newly discovered behavior in some ways. Um, most butterflies in that family that have a relationship with ants, though, it is slightly simpler, which is that the caterpillars are tended, we call it tended by the ants on the plants that the caterpillars feed on normally. And in those instances, there are special organs on the back of the caterpillar that secrete a sugary substance similar to the honeydew that aphids produce as a waste product. And this is attractive to the ants and the ants will gather this sugary solution that they need. And in return, they vigorously defend the ant against some forms of predation or parasitism. And so, that is the more common relationship where it does appear to be a mutualism. And it might be that finding your way into the ant colony is a, uh, is a behavior that evolved from that tendon mm -hmm. behavior. That's slightly more general. Yeah. Yeah. No, because the, the, um, the blue butterflies in the ant colony, I like you say, I'm not sure whether it's a mutualism because the butterfly, the caterpillars are eating the, the antics and such like so it's, it's like how do the ants benefit from that but i think i think it's great there's always gonna be some things we don't know the answers to and we can just wonder um and that's one reason why i, I love nature you know, because there's so many things to just be amazed by and not necessarily have to get worried that i just don't know the answer to it all you know yeah especially those sorts of relationships that that we as people call cryptic, which means they're hard for us to observe uh, and are often very, very detailed and intimately choreographed. It takes a long time to explore the dynamics of those relationships in a scientific yeah. framework. It takes a long time. Yeah, definitely. I do want to clarify something. I think you had said that ants defend the ants from oh, parasitism. Geez, you that? meant the caterpillar, right? Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Yes, I was like, that course. makes a lot more sense. I <laughs> assume that's what you meant. I just Confusing wanted to clarify. Yeah, I was like, yeah. that is some snazzy sugary substance oh, my, from those sorry, caterpillars no, that they're that's... also protecting the ants from like <laughs> giving them this cool defense <laughs> mechanism. But no, that makes a lot of sense. I wish we had these tiny, tiny cameras that we can almost put on the caterpillars and then observe inside the ant colony and see what's going on. Almost like bug's life. <laughs> <laughs> that would be very cool. So I think most people, when we think about butterflies, we often think about them in the summertime. When it's warm, you see the caterpillars because that's the time of year that we see them, right? Um, and so we think about habitat and what we can do to help the adults or the caterpillars or the chrysalis. But 
when the weather is not so nice and we're in the winter, um, is it just as important for us to consider winter habitat? Are there ways that we're impacting butterflies that maybe we don't even realize in the winter? And what are things that we can do to help support them in the winter? Because obviously in supporting the entire life cycle is really important. We can't just support one part of their life cycle. We need to consider the entirety of it. Yeah, winter habitat is certainly important for butterflies and moths, just as it is for other insects. Like I said, if you don't leave, you have to stay there and find a way. And so we have already talked about how um, butterflies that overwinter as adults nestle in tree cavities or under leaf litter and in rock crevices. And especially in areas where the trees in your yard are native to the area, they very well may have moths and butterflies overwintering in their bark or eggs and pupae attached to their fallen leaves that will fall near the base of the tree and are then readily available for the caterpillars when they emerge in the springtime. So leaving leaves and dead plants through the winter in that way is very valuable, as well as managing the timing of when you do any type of management technique, whether it's mulching or mowing or so on. There's There are more and less appropriate times because of where they are at different times in their life cycle. Probably the best and most straightforward thing that people can do for butterflies through their whole life cycle is add the plants that the caterpillars need to eat. Folks are becoming more familiar now with plants that provide adult butterflies with nectar, along with bees and other flying insects. But while butterflies can visit many types of flowers as adults, most species can only eat one or a few types of plants as caterpillars. Monarchs, for example, feed only on milkweeds, which are plants in one genus, Asclepius. The ruddy copper that I mentioned earlier feeds on docks and sorrels, which are in the buckwheat family. And so by planting the correct caterpillar food plants for the butterflies that are in your area, you are oftentimes providing both the summer habitat that they need and the winter habitat that they need to complete their life cycle. Because for example, most of those blue butterflies are not going to lay their eggs far from the plant. Their caterpillars do not move very much. Their adults do not move very much. There's no advantage of them to spread their eggs out on the landscape. So that plant is the that is their habitat throughout their entire life cycle. So that's not always the case, but certainly adding the plants there, they need those plants at some point or another. And so they're not usually going to stray that far. So thank you, Kevin. We're, we're, we're wrapping up now, coming up to our last question. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sure this is actually Rachel's favorite question. So uh, it's an honor for me to get to ask it this time. Um, so what inspired you to work with butterflies um, and, and their conservation? I appreciate that question. It's always fun to think back a little bit. Uh, I have been camping since I was five or six years old, thanks to my parents uh, and being in scouts. But beyond kind of an initial love of the outdoors, my restoration ecology course in my undergraduate degree was really formative for me, I think. Uh, beyond butterflies, my advisor, Dr. Charles McClarity, really in that course helped show me how human disturbed landscapes could be really important habitats for all sorts of plants and animals. And even more importantly, it showed me that when we make 
careful, conscious, thoughtful decisions about our actions, we can improve our landscapes and have a positive effect on those plants and animals through our own actions, through our own disturbances, as it were. And so uh, that was really informative for me to understand our place on the landscape and what we can do with, with the animals and plants that are around us to benefit them and us at the same time. When it comes to butterflies, after I finished my PhD and my wife finished her master's, we were looking for a way to stay in the area, stay in Nevada, and at the same time, uh, excite other people about insects and science and Nevada's landscapes, the way we were excited about them and love to travel through them. And I know I'm biased, but butterflies are a great way to introduce the public to insects and some of some of what insects do on the landscape. Some of them are just, you know, they're so big, they're brightly colored, they don't sting. My wife and I always call them the gateway insect. So uh, we earlier in our operations, we ran a seasonal butterfly house for five years. And during that time, we really got in touch with a large range of butterflies and their life cycles, <clears throat> rearing those butterflies for the butterfly house. And talking with butterflies, <clears throat> excuse me, and talking with families about butterflies, talking about their life cycles and their ecology, exactly the stuff we've been talking about here today in a butterfly house with the butterflies that we raised that are from our area uh, is always going to be a highlight of my life for me. That is really, you know, there's nothing like that connection between you and the public and the animals. And so many of the species we worked with at that time were relatively common, but since then I've had these opportunities to go look for some of Nevada's rare butterflies. And it really drives home that if we protect them in very simple ways by making these thoughtful decisions, we can have such a positive impact on them. These are butterflies that survive adjacent to alkaline playa flats with a pH in the soil of over 10 that reach 105 degrees Fahrenheit in the summer and negative 10 in the winter. And they might be inundated with water for three months in the spring, and then they'll have almost no rain at all for the next four months. And they do just fine. Or they sit in the sand for years, and wait for a super bloom to come along. And so having lived in Nevada for 15 years now, I know personally that that lifestyle appeals to the people out here. I know that that appeals to people of the West. I know that if you talk to them and educate them about the amazing diversity of these animals, that they will also want to protect them. And it gives me that motivation to do the work that I do here as Xerxes. And so I'm really grateful to be able to help landowners, land managers, and policymakers make these decisions that can allow these animals to continue their own ways of life too. That yeah, no, I can, yeah, I was <laughs> going to say, just listening to you there, I can, I can see why others would be pulled in as well. It's really incredible. We think of butterflies as these fragile animals, but they're so hardy and incredible. And I think we can learn so much from them. So thank you so much for sharing that. And thank you for coming today and just teaching us so much about these butterflies. I learned a lot. Well, thank you both so much for having me. Like I said, I always enjoy chatting natural history. It's always a good time. So thanks very much. Bug Banter is brought to you by the Xerces Society, a donor-based nonprofit that is working to protect insects and other invertebrates, the life that sustains us. If you are already a donor, thank you so much. If you want to support our work, go to xerces.org slash donate. For information about this podcast and for show notes, go to xerces.org slash bug banter.